It's interesting how we consumers like to link our good conscience with luxury purchases. Like, sure, I will spend two thousand, whatever, hundred dollars to do a little bit of, you know, some, something good somewhere in a city and in a harbor where I don't go to and I don't live in. I don't even live on that continent, right? So I'm not spending my two thousand seven hundred dollars to do something good. I buy myself a watch and you know somehow feel good about it myself. But this is a trend, and I feel like we'll see a whole lot more brands do this. Hold it more frequently. Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly with special guest host. Ooh, we have a guest host. We have Rob Corder from watchpro.com and David and no Ariel because I've something to do with some country wanting to be independent from some other country and they need to celebrate this. I don't see the reason why they need to celebrate it. Instead, we, we found an Englishman to come on just to adjust the balance for this recording the day after American Independence Day. Congratulations to all those that are now independent. Ariel was making his way home from a party, but Rob and David, how are you both? Very good. Just back from holiday, so fully rested. Fully rested. Did you go anywhere exciting? I always feel odd when I say, did you go anywhere nice? Did you go anywhere exciting? As opposed to people that choose to go on holiday and not go somewhere nice or not go somewhere exciting. But where did you end up going? I'll go nice rather than exciting. Very restful trip to Greece. Greece, very good, very good. And David, how are you? Good, doing excellent. You don't sound like you're doing excellent. You sound like you've just woken up. No, it's 10.37 a.m. here. It is true I'm consuming my first coffee of the day, so maybe that, ah. that's what, what you can hear in my voice. So as the recording goes on, the pitch will change ever so slightly. Yep. This has been an interesting week in terms of watch releases, and we'll come on to them later via what's on a blog to watch.com. But one of the reasons for getting Rob on from the good ship watch Pro is Rob's got a particular focus on the industry. So Rob, can you give us a very quick elevator pitch on watchpro.com and then we're going to have a wee industry chat before we get you to also comment on all the watches that were covered on a blog to watch this week. So give us give us a pitch. Watchpro is a very broad church, but I think that in, if you gave me five seconds in the elevator, I would say we're the sort of Wall Street Journal or Financial Times of the, of the watch world. So if you want to know a bit about the, the data, the numbers behind what's going on, particularly for investors and collectors, then uh, we've got a sort of slightly different uh, slant on the news for, from that business point of view. Clearly, there is, I don't know, there's a smell, there's a whiff in the air that, you know, supply is changing, demand is changing, grey market prices, used prices, etc, etc. So what do you think the status of the watch world from a business sense is right now? I, I think we are at the beginning of a, of a downturn, quite honestly. I think if you look back to the beginning of the year, the first quarter was just, well, not business as usual, but business as, as it was in in 2021, still a very, very hot market in the first three months of the year, leading up to Watches of Wonders at the end of March was absolutely overflowing with, with optimism and cash-rich brands who had sort of unexpectedly good years in 2021, having cuts costs during the pandemic, they became super profitable. And then I think almost immediately since with the with the cost of living crisis that we're seeing, particularly in the, the wealthy Western markets, widely reported in the UK, inflation running, running very high, 
probably at the beginning of, of, a, of a recession in the UK, the, the sentiment changed. And you can see how that, that change in sentiment fed through almost immediately to secondary markets, which is where I look for evidence and uh, statistics on what the impact is. So we've seen cooling prices in, in the secondary markets. And I, I think that there's probably the luxury Swiss watchmakers are going to have to respond to that and rein in the production. Otherwise, we could face another oversupply situation. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, Rob, about that, because, you know, with the discussion for now, uh, especially for the um, you know last couple of years, has been primarily about um, a huge demand, you know, like the overpowering supply. So uh, to me, it sounds like we're still very far away from uh, supply meeting demand. Do you reckon that that could happen sometime soon with the likes of Rolex and others? Or when you just what you just said was more um, addressed to other manufacturers and not Rolex and, and the like. Yeah, there's a clue in the question there. You, when you ask about Rolex and others, I think you have to treat those as two completely separate uh, part, parts of the market. I don't see the uh, shortage of Rolexes being resolved uh, any anytime soon. I think that the demand is so far in excess of, of supply there. When you you know just when you talk about fundamentals, like how many new millionaires are, are, are minted every, every day around the world, and they're, you know, some, of, some of which are going to become Rolex customers. Others, I think particularly the, the big Richemont, Swatch Group, LVMH Group brands, I think that's the area where you're going to see some softness. And, and really, there's never been a, a supply issue there. If, if anything, there's been an oversupply issue there for or low-level oversupply issue there for, uh, for some time. But I think we we have to to say that through 2021 and into the first quarter of 2022, the demand spread out from this sort of the makers of those what I call unicorn watches, the ones you just cannot get your hands on. It spread. There was a sort of trickle down effect. So that you know, Cartier had a, an exceptional year last year. Amiga is having a, a good time. There's been reports of shortages of certain IWC ceramic pilot models or Zenith uh, Chronomaster Sport models. So there's pockets of shortages within other brands. Rolex, the situation continues that that the vast majority of, if not all of their watches are, are still selling for over retail on, on the secondary market. It's just that the prices have come down from, from their peaks. And I've got some data on that if you're interested. Where do you see the peaks? What What is, you know, what kind of percentages come off of these used Rolex prices? I've got a special report on pre-owned luxury watches in the secondary market in the July edition of Watch Pro. We work with uh, Chronix based in Switzerland, big in Germany, on that report. And they provided some data. Actually, we, we decided to look quite specifically at discontinued watches. If you remember how hot the 5711 was last year when it was was discontinued and the, the Royal Oak Jumbo being discontinued, the prices just went absolutely crazy. Well, the same thing was, has been happening with some, some Rolex models, particularly in the Oyster Perpetual range, you know, all the, all the uh, new colourful uh, Oyster Perpetuals. So the most extreme examples that we picked out were a 36-millimeter Oyster Perpetual in pale, pale pink color. At the beginning of the year, that was selling, that was being traded for about 20,000 euros, which is about what, four times its retail price. That 
increased to 34,000 euros around about the time of Watches and, and Wonders, and has since dropped down to 16,000 euros. So from peak, wow. so from peak to trough, 34,000 euros to 16,000 euros, that's a 53% drop. <laughs> wow. Do we think that 16,000 euros is, I know it's a kind of daft question, is what it should be trading at on the secondary market? Is that, for want of a better expression, the correct price? It depends who you ask. Chronix likes to talk about market prices, as in it's not, you know, they don't, they're powerless to, to resist market, yep. market forces. So you would say that that's its price at, at, at that time. I mean, another example, the uh, 36 millimeter with the, the blue, pale blue, not allowed to call it Tiffany color dial. <laughs> but we'll bleep that word well, out. Exactly. That went from beginning of the year, 22,000 euros, doubled up to 45,000 euros, and then fell back to 23,500 euros, which is a 48% drop. The 41 millimeter with the same color dial peaked at 48,000. Uh, and dropped to 36,000. That's a 25% drop, all of which these are discontinued models. They, they were sort of quietly removed from the, from the list by, by Rolex around about the time of Watches and Wonders. Do we think, though, that this is working like a stock market in that as soon as the prices start to drop, people take profit, and so the prices continue to drop? Or is it demand-supply-driven, whereby... There is now a supply leaking through of other watches that people want, so they're going for them, which means that just there's a lack of demand for these. So in order for people to get out of the position, they're having to sell the watch. Or is it a completely false wooden dollars thing that these prices have dropped, but nobody's actually trading them at these levels? I think there's a temptation to describe the secondary market like like the stock market, like rising and falling. and But I think that, you know, the thing about the stock market is it, it's almost perfectly liquid. You can get you can get in and out of positions quickly and quickly and easily, and the price and the price respond, yeah. responds. I don't think that's true of the of the secondary market. And I had a very interesting conversation with a big big player in in this space, who was describing just how much of what you see uh, on the likes of Chrono Twenty Four as business to business trade. So professional dealers ranging from really, really big players that, that we've all, all heard of down to people who have just got into it over the last 18 months and built, built a position, got a bunch of watches, made a, made a ton of money in the very, very easy and benign conditions of the last year or two. And they, they may, be, may, may be feeling the pinch a bit. But what this CEO was, was telling me was that the business-to-business trading on those platforms has virtually seized up. So for a fairly obvious reason when you have it explained to you, which is it's in everybody's interests for prices not to be seen to be falling very, very fast because that can cause a panic. So their choice is to is to hold, is to stick, rather than if you if you are forced to sell, you are going to have to drop your price, drop your price, drop your price until you until you find a buyer. If you're able to hold and just keep advertising the watches at peak prices, that you know you're, you're not going to see the graphs heading south nearly nearly as quickly. So what this analysis would would suggest is that 
the real price is probably considerably lower than you're actually seeing if you look at the, the graphs and graphics on the, on sites like Credit Twenty Four. It could be that it could be the prices that I've been telling you now are already well out of date, and, and the actual deals are being done at a, at a lower level. Yeah, I think that's probably correct because what you're seeing is the reverse of how a market would normally work, which is when you restrict supply, prices go up. They're restricting supply and prices are still going down, which, as you say, means that they're probably, if the supply was opened up, would drop even faster. And so the actual price at which trades are actually happening is well below what is being advertised just to keep, you know, it's a lack of liquidity in the market. You've got people who, as you say, have built up positions with maybe a hundred watches they've tried to get into as a as a thing and now they're sitting in a completely negative equity yes they're sitting in negative equity with their supply of of watches with what they're sitting on and they can't afford to stay in it and they can't afford to get out of it and while the big companies who we know have built up huge stock and have tried to not rig the market would be the wrong expression but have tried to control the market because unlike cash or stocks and shares there is a limited amount. It's a bit like Bitcoin. Ultimately, there's a limited amount of the thing. There's a limited amount of Rolex. So they've tried to control as much of the stock as they can and drip feed it out because they've got enough cash to sit on that stock. But now, if they were to... I don't know how they account for these things, but presumably if it's a PLC, they're going to have some pretty strict accounting rules as to how they deal with cost of stock. They're going to be showing some big negative numbers on their on their books depending on, on, on how they account for it. So it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. What's your impression? Is this going to be a new normal or will it continue to go down? And then a year from now, two years from now, just like a stock market crash, we'll be back up at record numbers again. My guess would be we're going to see prices continue to fall. And I think the industry were hoping that there's a, a soft landing and they'll be hoping that that soft landing is somewhere around two to three times retail for a very, very large number of, of references from, from the biggest brands. Because if you have that sort of situation, that will account for 80, 90% of the market and it will make the secondary market look very attractive still. It's interesting you talk about people who might be hold, sitting on a, a hundred watches and now in negative equity. I'm sure a lot of people would say that their, their hearts bleed for them. <laughs> It's a very, very small violin. Exactly, but you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't know whether they're going to be forced to sell. And they, but they may well be. These, a lot of them are people who made money on trading trainers, sneakers, trading Bitcoin. All, all of these markets have really, really tanked. So they could be, you know, in a position where they, where they do need to offload large amounts of stock. And if that happens and they have to find buyers, then we could see prices lowering sharply. Certainly, people in the secondary market don't anticipate a situation where the high-volume uh, unicorn watches, which is a bit of a contradiction in, in terms, <laughs> will, will drop below retail. They, they see it, they, they, you know, I suppose they would say this, wouldn't they? But they see it set, settling at two, two to three times retail. David, what do you think Rolex as a corporation think of this? Uh, yeah, I was just going to ask uh, something on that note, speaking of how the uh, the corporations are behaving in this scenario. And before I answer a question, Rick, I, I just wanted to ask Rob, when, when do you think or why is it, and I would love for our audience to understand this as well, 
is it that these brands don't raise their retail prices anywhere near uh, these figures? I understand that a 50% drop or hike is not something they could react to, but sometimes I also get the sensation that the gap is so large that it raises the question, why is it that a Daytona retails for 15,000 and not 20 or 25,000? So at least a little bit closer, therefore reducing the margin that the second hand market or the, the gray market can, uh, can realize. Um, I mean, they they have they do raise their prices a, yep. a little bit, but I know, but I take your point. You know, they you, you would think they could double or treble the prices of their of their steel steel sports watches, and and their authorized dealers would do would do better from it. I mean, I think Rolex wants to be positioned as the first luxury watch that people aspire to buy. I think mean, that's that's why they sponsor mass audience uh, sports events. Um, hmm. That's why they price their entry level models at you know the five to seven thousand dollar mark. They they want to maintain that that position so that people who know nothing about watches and could probably only name three or four watch brands, they want to make sure that Rolex is the luxury watch that they all think about. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. What I what I was referencing was more like the Daytona, which is not really an entry level Rolex. I I understand the point of having an oyster, but perpetual at like 5,000, 6,000, whatever. But then again, that's not really where all these huge margins are being made when compared to, again, the Daytona and some other pieces there, or even the Skydweller or whatever uh, you want to think of. Yes, the, the Oyster Perpetual has been on this roller coaster a little bit, but at least it's settled. And also um, what struck my ear was when you said that Cornex likes to talk about market prices and we had a block watch like to talk about retail prices uh, when speaking of a watch, you know. So sure, sometimes we reference at their uh, second hand or gray market value, especially like when I review a twenty twenty five thousand dollar watch, which is a lot of watch for that kind of money. And I say, hey, you know, would you have this or would you have a Daytona? But at the same time, and ninety five percent of the time, we reference retail prices. So that that was why I was asking this question. But I take your point, and that also answers Rick's uh, question a little bit. I feel like Rolex has to exercise a certain amount of caution because, you know, uh, for retail prices on luxury items, there's only one way and it's up. Uh, once you have to start discounting and, and give discounts, then that's a terrible scenario, which is why we hear about inventory buybacks, for example. They would much rather buy back and destroy their own inventory, uh, at least those brands who can afford to do so, than to give discounts. So probably uh, that also explains the, the caution on their part. So final question before we come on to some reviews for this week. We've seen the growth of the independent, like the high-end independent, and if you like, the lower-end micro-brands. How much of that has been driven by scarcity and high values of grey markets? And do we think there are a few independents and micro-brands that are now likely to suffer because people bought them because they had spare cash because they couldn't really get the watch they wanted from Rolex or AP. But now that the market is contracting and prices are going down and there's a cost of living crisis, do we think we need to be a bit worried about some of these flash brands that have happened? You know, suddenly a brand's appeared out of nowhere and been the latest, latest and greatest thing, either at the high end or the lower end. I don't. I don't think so. I think that this is much more demand-driven. I think that people during the, the very early days of the, of the pandemic, where they had uh, time on their hands, they were stuck in front of the screen. They couldn't do. The, they couldn't spend their money on the holidays and the luxury 
uh, restaurants and stuff like that. So they spent time researching their hobbies. And if their hobby happened to be watch, watch collecting, I think they just moved up through, through the gears. So if you were starting with Rolex and AP and you know, aspiring to own a, a Patek Philippe or a Vash one, you start to look around at what else is, is there and you discover just amazing watchmakers, Vuteleinen, um, Grodenfels, um, De Bethune. I think that's, I think, you know, the, the quantities that these watchmakers uh, produce every year, you know, Epijon, around about a thousand watches, maybe, maybe less, but many of them are, uh, are in the tens not even not even the hundreds. So I think there will always be now now that these these watchmakers, these artisan watchmakers are appreciated for what they are, I think that they, that appreciation will continue and collectors will will continue to chase chase after them. I mean again, there might be some softness, but you're not going to see, you know, you're not, you're not going to be able to walk in and find an FP drawn in, in a cabinet. Off the off the street any anytime soon, if ever. I would be thinking about the micro brand side of things, David. Yeah, I think that that explains. You know, the COVID is a, is a greater explanation than anything else, and and also partial the frustration. I I understand that you know once you have twenty twenty five thousand to spend on a big brand, but you know I feel like there's certainly a growing part of the market who understands watches well enough to be able to make the jump from owning a Rolex or an AP or a Patek onto an independent. But in my mind, that's a more uh, experienced and more seasoned watch enthusiasts and watch collector who have already, who had already ticked that box because it's not like, you know, a lot of us feel this urge, like I have to own a Rolex, I have to own an AP, I have to own all these major brands to experience, you know, what all the fuss is about, why I've read so many articles and so much praise about these brands and have these experiences because before I can feel comfortable and move on to an independent that much fewer people will recognize. And, you know, I've read much less about and I need to dig a lot deeper to be able to fully appreciate. I did say that was the last question, but I have one more. <laughs> Who do we think is going to suffer the most? I think it will be the the fairly high volume group owned brands. I think that it'll come down to how accurately they can match supply to demand. When I, I ran some numbers just on the on the UK market, which was very very hot in the in the first quarter with retail sales, uh, G- we have GFK, which measures actual sell out rather than sell in uh, for, to, to retail. You know, the, the market was running at over 30% year on year growth in, in the first quarter, and then decelerated rapidly in April and May to, to a, actually a year on year decrease of retail sales in, in May of seven, down 7% year on year. Then if you look across to Swiss watch export figures, the figure in May was 30% up for the UK in May. So retail sales down 7%, sell-in effectively, or wholesale sell-in, 37% up. That's That, I think, is something to, to keep an eye on because if you see oversupply, it's not going to be for Rolex, Patek and, and AP. It's going to be for Cartier, Omega, IWC, Tagheuer, you know, these sorts of brands that are, that are making very large numbers of, of watches that might not find customers at a retail level. Personally, I think I'd be worried for the likes of Grand Seiko. It's, it's both a specialist buy in that if you know, you know, but also I think increasingly certainly in the UK relies on, I can't get a Rolex, I'm not a watch geek, oh, but that looks really nice. And a brand expert has has sold it to me. 
because we can't sell more Rolex. So it'd be interesting to see how the Japanese brands get on the high end Japanese as being slightly to the left of the Swiss watch, which people presumably view as being more of a safe, in inverted commas, investment. Maybe not to grow their investment, but not to lose their shirt over it. Whereas I wonder if Grand Seiko has not quite got the establishment in the UK. I would disagree with that, I think, just because of the tra- trajectory and the way it's been handled on, on its way up, if you like. So, it's just, you know, right. Grand Seiko is pretty, almost brand new to the, to the UK. It was, uh, it was further ahead. It, it, it was really born as an as a international brand in the United States, which had a, a just, just became very hot among knowledgeable watch lovers and, and, and collectors. There are ways to influence the market, and I think Grand Seiko's marketing of its products and rollout through through a network of really good quality authorized de- dealers opening their own store flagship stores as well. I think there's that, you know that marketing is demand generation. It is going to generate demand on its own. So I, I don't see softness there myself. Good. Well, I'm sure handsome Rob will be pleased to hear that the Grand Seiko man. <laughs> In the UK, uh, David, anyone you're particularly concerned about? Who do you think's going to suffer the most? Yeah, I, I completely, I completely agree with with Rob's assessment. I think that's 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 borderline obvious that it's it's those brands, big group, big volume brands who will who will who will struggle potentially, especially if they can't you know moderate their sell in because you know people will moderate their purchases for sure in the coming like, you know twelve months maybe more. Good. Oh well, uh, thank you for that uh, discussion, uh, gentlemen. Let's crack on and review some watches. Girard Perigo unveils the Laureato 42mm pink gold and onyx watch. This was an article from Ripley. And I think this kind of relates a little bit to the previous discussion. So I first looked at this and thought, you know what? If it was a choice between an AP and this Girard Perigo of a similar nature right now, I'd go for the GP. But then I'm thinking, hold on a second, market, etc., etc., cost of living, Okay, if you're trying to buy a $50,000 watch, cost living crisis, maybe not front and center, but maybe retention value. Am I then going, oh, well, I really, really like this GP. Actually, I'll stick and wait for the AP. So first of all, what do we think of this Girard Perigo? David, you're a big GP fan. Yeah, I'm a big fan, but I'm not sure I would be, you know, rushing to the GP boutique with 54,300 of my hardened dollars to sink into an all gold watch because like you said, it's, it's value retention. That's the issue with these. And, and also whenever I look at a solid gold watch with like three hands and maybe a date. I always think of a day date and I feel like if it's more expensive or just as expensive as a day date, I would always get the day date. Maybe I'm too much of a, a traditionalist or maybe I don't have the, uh, the, the imagination, but I feel like you have to really try very hard to make a better watch uh, and a better design than a 36 day date in whichever, um, you know, gold alloy that you prefer or even platinum and 54,000. I feel like that's at day date or actually higher than a, than a day date is with less functionality. These Onyx dials are lovely, but you can get a GP without a gold case. I, I seem to remember that they had these Onyx dials a year or two ago and they look fantastic, but at the same time, legibility is not that great because the hands and the indices are also very reflective as is the crystal and the dial. So the concept is great, but uh, in real life, you know, you have to think, you have to remind yourself, hey, I have an Onyx dial on my legible watch, how great that is. 
mixed bag. Thank you. Thank you for stealing my dreams away from me. You can always count on me for that, right? Exactly, exactly. Uh, Rob, what do we think of Girard Perigo as a brand and, and this particular release? When you're when you're looking at that sort of price, it's you've, you've really got to love it, obviously, or or see it as a future classic, as a future future auction quality piece. I like I like the styling. I saw a lot of gold and black combination uh, at Watches and Wonders. I think it'd be interesting to see what what we see from Gerard Perigo and Ulysses Nardin since it's been bought up by its management and, uh, and Patrick Punio, backed by plenty of venture capitalists, I believe, uh, have interesting plans for it. But I, I, doubt, I doubt we'll see anything dramatically different from, from either of those two brands in, in the short term, but it'd be interesting to see how it goes over the next few years. How long do you think it will take for Patrick with his new funding stream and freedom from the previous uh, group ownership? How how long do you think it takes to to make a change to turn the oil tanker? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think we'll, we'll you know if we look back in five years, we'll probably see there have been some changes, but, we, but they might be fairly imperceptible over those five years. David, you think that the way to compare any three hand watch with a day is is it better or worse? than the day date or a day just oh this one yeah yeah i i don't think it's it's as great as a day date i think it's it's a little bit too large again legibility is not that great and uh yeah it's really it's really tough i it, it's it's interesting because i feel like the steel sports rolexes get all the praise in the world and i feel like they actually are the ones who face some really strong competition from other brands and it's the all gold day day that is that is probably the most difficult to beat rolex out there well thank you both for preventing me from spending fifty four thousand three hundred dollars this year perigo i suppose i should be grateful yes. in a way <laughs> we just saved you a bunch of money rick <laughs> exactly there we, there we have it there we have it this year, Hermes launched the Arso. Uh, hold on, I have to actually check whatever it was called. Uh, <laughs> the Arso Le Temps Voyageur. Excuse my French. Be very careful. Uh, ex- exactly. Excuse I, your French. I, I have absolutely <laughs> no clue how it should be, but I believe that that's, that's close enough. Yeah. Okay, so please accept that. <laughs> we all know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, over the previous years, uh, Hermes has launched a, um, a number of, uh, of these uh, quirky and uh, borderline poetic watches that are also mechanically complicated and they go back actually longer than than the last few years my the first one which was not the first one but the one closest to my heart is actually the Le Temps Suspendu which we referenced I think you know a few podcasts before a few yeah. episodes before and this one is basically a continuation of that where you have a base movement with a quirky uh, module on top and uh, th- what this one allows uh, the wearer to do is to set a second time zone but do so wa- uh, while moving a subdial across an imaginary planisphere of all things which uh Again, has a quirky Hermes equestrian themed design. I feel like these watches are for niche of the niche um, audience. I can imagine someone who's like a hardcore Hermes collector in Hong Kong or New York or London or wherever entering an Hermes boutique and looking at that and, oh, what's that? That's great. Okay, I will have to have it because it's rare. It's full of uh, Hermes design clues. So sure, why not? I'm happy it exists. And it's priced at, let's see, 28 1825 in 41 millimeter guys and 22550 i love these prices in 38 millimeters <laughs> 
I did think for such a niche of a niche of a niche, making it in two sizes seemed a bit extraordinary. Like, how many of these are you going to sell? And actually what we'll do is we'll make a 38 mil and a 41 mil. Yeah, and even the materials are different. So uh, on the one, you know, you have a platinum case. Well, actually, just bits of it are platinum. And the bezel is a black DLC-coated titanium. So you have platinum and titanium in a watch like this that it's already uh, mechanically complicated in the movement. So these are as quirky as it gets. And I feel like even the cases are horizontally asymmetrical so the top plugs are completely different than the bottom ones there's just so much going on and yet the whole thing still comes together into a rather handsome and you know actually daily wearable watch so i do respect rms very much for nailing this and your preference 38 mil or 41 the 38 looked better but i but i enjoyed the uh, the material uh, combination of platinum and titanium in the larger version but i would still go for the smaller one it just wore better it did seem a bit of a peculiar platinum titanium and dlc yep they kind of threw the parts spin at this one. What do you think of it, Rob? I'm not the target market for this sort of watch. I'm, <laughs> I'm just, uh, my eyes are too old. I just can't can't make out the detail on this. I've got my reading glasses on in perfect light and, and everything else. But I do think it's an interesting part of the market, the, the sort of fashion house um, uh, market for when you look at uh, the likes of Hermes and Chanel and Gucci, these types of watches. They're actually... They're more successful than you than you might think. They're, they're bigger players. So so Hermes has, has actually had a had a very very strong year for its H zero eight sort of sportier steel, more more accessible entry level men's watch, and that helped it uh, increase sales from one hundred ninety six million euros in twenty twenty to three hundred thirty seven million in twenty. 21. So it actually has a, it's had a successful year and Gucci's had a decent year as well. And, and Chanel is, is really a brand to watch. So Rob, I was wondering, do you have any data or any information? How is this group of consumers constructed? Like, are they hardcore watch lovers? Are they just walk into a boutique, see that, hear that it's expensive, no other, you know, Louis Vuitton or, or Gucci collector will have that in town and they just buy it outright. So what's the ratio there between these two people? I'll just give you a gut feel on that rather than having any data to, to back it up but I think that most of these watches are sold through their own boutiques alongside you know handbags and uh, and apparel and all that sort of thing and and very much driven by uh, the the Asian market I, I would think if you're an Hermes lover then you might have an Hermes, Hermes watch and so do you think this is a kind of like his and her thing that they both go into the Hermes boutique and this allows both parties to come away with something, a sports watch and a handbag? Maybe. It's pure, pure <laughs> speculation. <laughs> so hit or miss on this one, David, you you like it. Would you buy it though? Would you spend your hard... You, you referred earlier to your hard-earned cash. I, I, I'm not sure it's necessarily hard-earned, but you do have cash. <laughs> so uh, would you spend your cash on this Hermes? Oh, the one I found in the in the couch? Yeah, sure. There's, yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, there's yeah. 22 grand. Yes. Uh, uh-huh. Actually, I, I always find myself on, on Chrono24 and other um, online outlets searching for the tons to spend it. as the one I would buy. And those actually are selling between like eight and 12,000. So I think that's the one I would get uh, for a fraction of the price of one of these. 
Big week for Oris, a new release, Oris Aquas New York Harbour Limited Edition watch. Now, when I think of New York, when I think of anywhere that's a big city and I'm talking about harbours, I always think, yeah, I'm not going for a swim in there. But this watch has been released as part of the Billion Oyster Project to support it. This Oris has got quite a reaction from the community for a number of reasons. A lot of people like the look of it. This kind of dyed green mother of pearl dial is quite spectacular. But it's also coming for a bit of criticism on the other side, which is for the fact that it's got not the new Oris Bear 400 movement in it. It's gone back. It's gone backwards effectively. It's also, I don't think it's got quick release straps. Don't think it's got a diver extension either. So it just seemed to be a bit of an oddball. Really nice looking watch, but maybe not quite up to some of the technology, some of the included bits, if you like, of more recent releases. David, your thoughts on this? Is is this just a bit of an oddball watch? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what the what the exact collaboration with this uh, with this um, initiative is, but I'm, I'm you know I would hazard a guess that part of the proceeds go to you know to support it. And when it comes to that, you either raise the price or you you know produce a, a watch at a lesser cost, and maybe that's what happened. But actually, when this one landed in my inbox, I was looking at this and I liked the initiative, and I was really genuinely entertaining the thought of just purchasing it because you know it, it's interesting how we first world consumers like to link our conscious uh, good conscience with uh, luxury purchases like sure i will spend two thousand whatever hundred dollars to do a little bit of you know some, something good somewhere in a city and in a harbor where i don't go to and i don't live in i don't even live on that continent right so i'm not spending my two thousand seven hundred dollars to do something good i buy myself a watch and you know somehow feel good about it myself but this is a trend and I feel like we'll see a whole lot more brands do this a whole lot more frequently that we see these environmental issues and these feel good, you know, collaborations, etc. And I'm not talking about Oris, uh, against Oris, so don't get me wrong. I feel like these are good initiatives and something that all brands and every luxury brand should actually do, I would expect every single luxury brand to do something good in the world. Yeah, I, I quite like the idea of all the watch journalists going down to see this and then being forced to pick up litter or something at the beach as part of their uh, payment for their nice day out with Oris. There are a couple articles on the website about this. Uh, Rob, what do we think about the increasing tie-in? And certainly Oris, to be fair to them, have always been well ahead of the game in this. But what do we think about the increasing tie-in, as David's alluded to, of luxury watches and environmental causes? Does it actually make a difference to the sales that these brands experience or is it some sort of virtue signaling easing of their own consciences? I mean, if it makes a difference to sales, then then it probably falls more into the virtue signaling camp than than the sort of genuine wish to change to save the planet. But I I would uh, agree with your uh, point about Oris being uh, among the best of of these on this sort of thing. They, They have been banging the sustainability drum for years and years and years yeah, not just coming out with pretty limited editions with a with a collaboration with a with a sustainability charity, but real root and branch stuff. How how they make their watches, how they run their corporate offices, how, you know their policy on travel around the world. Ooh, ooh, you know, it's really it really runs deep with with Oris, and that is in contrast to other brands that I think are just greenwashing. The drawing on the back of the watch is a bit dubious. It doesn't quite look oyster enough. 
for my liking. I'm a bit confused. I would have thought possibly a picture of New York Harbour may have been slightly less confusing as to what it, an earth it is that's drawn on the back of the watch. I'm just thinking about how this watch doesn't say Oyster anywhere on it. It might have to do something with Rolex, but <laughs> they had to find a way to put an Oyster on it without it saying Oyster. Which is- that's a very good point, actually. Does it not say Oyster anywhere? So New York Harbour, I was looking, New York Harbour Limited Edition. Yeah, yeah, there is no Oyster anywhere. That's a very yeah. good point. Well, I will be speaking, hopefully, to somebody at Oris for next week's show, and I will ask the question hmm. as to whether there's a reason it doesn't say Oyster, see if we can get them to fess up as to whether that was a, a genuine concern that if they put the word Oyster. So there's 2,000 of these uh, available for sale now. So go and check out a couple of articles on the website. Great project. It's basically to do with oysters filtering water. So if you can put a whole lot of oysters back in the Hudson, then you get a lot cleaner water. Timex just launched the Expedition North White Dial with James Brand. And the reason why it captured my attention was that it's a $349 watch with an automatic movement and a titanium case. And that's what Timex does best. I mean, this is a great little beater with a military time dial, if you want to call it that, but lots of loom, a crisp white dial that says James on it, which is kind of funny <laughs> if you're not into James Brand. And 100 meters water resistant, limited to a thousand pieces. And I I keep asking to myself, what more do you want? Yeah, now I have no idea who James Brand is. When I first saw this, I thought it had been a spelling mistake and it was a James Bond Timex <laughs> Expedition North Whitedale because James Brand means nothing to me. Uh, who are James Brand? Anybody? Do you know who James Brand are, Rob? No, not a clue. No, this, is this an American thing? No idea. You're hungry. How do you know what James Brand are? We have absolutely no idea what, what that is. <laughs> <laughs> well, a quick Google reveals that it's something to do with knives. Oh, really? Appear. Okay. Yeah, they're, they appear to be a knife brand. Hmm. So, so there you good go. For so them. you know, so good for them. Yeah, it's kind of everyday carry type stuff. So I've no idea why Timex chose to do this with James Brand. I think there was a previous one. You're dead right though. If you were to look at a box of water resistance, collaboration, materials, limited edition, and price. Is there right now a more perfectly positioned watch than Mm. this one? I'm not a big Timex fan, basically because I'm Scottish. Mm. And for reasons we've gone into in past shows, Scotland and Timex have a bit of a a history with one another for one reason or another. But uh, this looks pretty spot on. What do we think, Rob? Well, I've, uh, I said I've just come back from holiday, so I'm wearing my holiday watch, which is at the moment a uh, Seiko Prospects automatic diver, which I like. But my previous holiday watch used to be a Timex Explorer quartz on a Velcro strap, you know, that didn't rotted around at the bottom of my suitcase for years and years and years. So I've got a bit of a, a soft spot for it and uh, a back price for an automatic. Why not? I can't think of anything that's actually better value would that be the right expression get something that's branded if you're into that sort of thing a collaboration it's limited edition you know rick what's funny about timex is is i i look at the timex watch and i think to myself that's great value and then i look at the comments and people say oh that should be half the price and i'm like (laughs) 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 that keeps happening for years and i'm like wow that's so much watch for you know i mean it's not a tiny amount of money but it's still a lot of watch for like 350 dollars and then they're like oh it should be half the price i'm like well how why yeah, it's a weird one because I look at this. I mean, it reminds me of 
a Hamilton khaki type yep. aesthetic. And you wouldn't get a Hamilton khaki limited edition collaboration automatic for $349, I don't think. No. Because I'm guilty of being the guy who scrolls to the bottom of the page to see what the price is before I read the article. I thought $349, it's a bit dear, but I suppose collaboration for a quartz watch. It was only when I scrolled back up again to realise that it was an automatic movement. I'm thinking, right, wait a minute. Uh, what's going on here? This just seems... It just seems a really strange pitch. I mean, great, great value, but it just seems odd that this is not $750, $800. But, you know, great. Well done, Timex. I mean, it's a cheap movement and a cheap strap, but, you know, everything else in the package is pretty good. And I feel like Mm -hmm. I can take that cheap movement and cheap strap if I'm paying $349 and not $700. For $700, it would need to, like, step up the movement game big time. Yeah, go check out the review at at a blog to watch by, by Mike. Okay, so we got there in the end. The release of the week, which has caused the most comments on a blog to watch, and I've saved till last is the new Breitling Super Ocean Automatic Watches. Now, we hinted that there was a big release coming on last week's show. It was commented to me off air that you, David, were not necessarily a big fan of these Hmm. when you saw the original images. Has that changed over the week? I've seen these hands-on. They are already in the in the boutiques, which is, you know, kudos to Breitling that they, they launched something and within the next couple of days, even here in Hungary, you can get one, not just in the in the newest and largest boutiques in the, you know, pushes towns, but even here. So again, I respect that very much. The smaller versions look better to my eyes for some reason. The larger ones look a little bit bloated and a little bit generic, if I may say so. Sure, they are. You know, this is what Breitling has been doing at least some of the time over the last number of years is that they look through their archives, they find something cool, and then they water it down big time to make it to turn it into something that would appeal, they think, to a to wider audience. And to, to a large degree, I mean, that has worked. Uh, nobody really wants as quirky a watch, or not masses, I should say, don't want watches as quirky as Breitling had been doing uh, in the 70s and 80s and even in the 2000s. They, sure, they, they would appeal to a niche audience, but, you know, George Kern and, and his Breitling is after uh, a much greater audience. And to appeal to them, you know, you have to be colorful, you have to be fun, you have to have, like, some historical historic pedigree, but at the same time, you have to be, you know, just inoffensive and, and be likable. And once you're super quirky, people will look at that and, you know, they don't know what to make of it, and then they go and, and buy, you know, something else. So again, this is a little bit of a generic diver. It's nicely made, but it just doesn't really, you know, speak Breitling to me. So Rob, you covered this on Watch Pro as well this week as one of the biggest releases. Has this actually replaced the current model Super Ocean? Is what we used to see of Super Oceans, which I really like, is are they all gone now? And this is what we've got in its place. I didn't know the answer to that. So actually I asked... Tracy Llewellyn, who's, who started as our new editor for Watch Pro just yesterday and has more expertise in this sort of thing than, than I do. She's pretty convinced that there will continue to be multiple Super Ocean lines. Isn't, isn't, there, a, isn't there a Super Ocean Heritage line as well? So I, I think this is going to be in addition rather than replacement. But that's that's the word from Tracy Llewellyn. So talk to her if, if that if that turns out to be wrong. <laughs> if it's wrong, Tracy, you've just been coward with it. Exactly. I mean, one thing I will say about Brightling on, on the business 
side is this this is a, a brand absolutely on fire particularly in north, yeah. particularly in north america it's, it's been very strong in the uk for for a long time my my only question would be whether they are spending too much buying market share spending private equity money or whether they are doing it profitably now it doesn't actually matter you know if the, if the, if the tactic is to buy market share and i suspect that it is it's it's working. They are definitely gaining market share. In, in 2019, the last year before the pandemic, Brightly was about half the size of, of Tagoya. Last year, they were neck and neck. So they've, you know, but the, the battle between Brightling and Tagoya, I think, is really really interesting one one to watch and to see whether being backed by private equity and effectively a private private company is uh, more effective than being part of LVMH, which you know, has has limitless resources to, to throw a tag oil if it, if it chooses to. Pre-getting into being a complete watch geek, then the three brands I knew about were Rolex, Tag Heuer, and Breitling. And actually, not knowing about watches, the ones that I would be attracted to in the shop window were always the Breitling. So I've always been a big fan. I don't know whether it's just that Navi timers have the ability to be super shiny and super interesting uh, to a 16-year-old staring through the window of his local authorised dealer. Always been a big fan. And yeah, it's interesting that you say that about Tag Heuer. Do you think that that's really where Breitling are positioning themselves to be the not entry level luxury brand would be the wrong thing, but just the you can't get a Rolex or a Rolex is for your dad. What you want as the up and coming, just graduated, just got your first big job. What you want is a Breitling. I think that I think they're they're definitely chasing the same. Yeah, and so what do you think the out game is? Like, how much longer does private equity stay within Breitling? Is there is there an obvious? Right, another couple of years and we're out because presumably George Kern's going to want out while he's still able to spend all the money that he'll make <laughs> from from sending Breitling public or moving it on to someone else. Do you think we're going to have a couple of years of this or is there still five to ten years to go? Well, private equity is always looking for an exit or a dividend. I don't think they'd be getting much in dividends at, at, at the moment. So I'm sure it's a long-term project. I wouldn't be at all surprised if it, if there were some acquisitions so that George Kern was running a, a small group of, of brands rather than just one. And I think that would make it a, an attractive proposition for, for, mm. a, for a, a stock market listing at some point in the future. That would be a, a possible route ahead. I like that. What if? So if you're sitting in Breitling's HQ... Thinking, right, who do I buy to make a wee group to? Who, who's my tutor to my Rolex? Who's on your hit list? I, I don't know. I think, I think it would probably be, be a bit unfair to name names. But there's, there's that sort of soft middle. There are a lot of brands in the you know, $5,000 to $10,000 space or even $3,000 to $10,000 space. They've all done well in the last 18 months when the market has been so hot. But uh, you know, let's, let's see who's... Uh, let's see who's wearing the bathing suit when the tide goes out. <laughs> and the tide does appear to be going out. So yeah, there might be one or two could be looking for some co-investment. So what do we actually think of the watch? They've released it in 36, 42, 44 and 46. So they've, you know, hedged their bets about which size is going to be the best. We showed it to retailers and not to press. 
Um, but uh, yeah, referring to my earlier statement about the age of my eyes, I, I like the uh, readability, the big chunky hands. Uh, yeah, it's my kind of watch. Yeah, no, I, I really like these. They, they seem to have got, on the one hand, a bit of a kicking by having an old movement in it, basically, rather than using the movement that Breitling have presumably invested a lot of money in with. Is it, can you see that Breitling own a part of? With Tudor, yeah. With Tudor. Yeah, they've been sharing movements with Tudor. Yeah, so while Norcane, who else uses that movement? Norcane use it, little company. And have chosen And Chanel have chosen not to use this movement that they've invested a lot of money in. I assume because the profit margin obviously costs more money, but you would think with the scale of production that Breitling are going to put in these watches that actually cost would be eeksy-peeksy between this and buying it off of ETA. This is what, what George Kern does really well. I, I, I think he identifies his, his market and he knows his customer very well. And he understands that most of the people who will go into the Breitling boutique because they saw like a huge advertisement or billboard with Brad Pitt and, you know, oh, I want to wear, you know, what Brad Pitt is wearing. They don't even know and they don't care what an in-house movement is. They don't, they don't, they don't understand and they don't care. And why would they need to sacrifice some margin or raise prices? They care about pricing. And I feel like these are priced really well. You can buy one of these at under five grand. And again, these are inoffensive looking, easy to like watches in fun colors. So if somebody enters a boutique and sees like, oh, okay, the 42 millimeter is like 4,750, you know, sure. I will just, just buy one of those and just be done with it. I trust the brand and I trust the, you know, and, and these feel high quality enough. So again, why spend any money on a, on an in-house movement or a quasi in-house movement that again is difficult to explain when you don't need to? I don't think they had to do that in this case. I do like the look of these. I particularly like the forty-four and the kind of brown and gold. And it does strike me that they are priced particularly competitively mm-hmm. in comparison to the likes of. I mean, what's this going up against? The Black Bay. Yeah, Boris? exactly. This definitely Tudor. Uh, Tudor Pelagos, I, I would say. I mean, is that the reason why it's not using the more expensive movement? <laughs> <laughs> because Tudor are like, no, 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 we're not going to let you can only use so many of these a year, and they want to produce all of these because they know that it's coming after, coming after the Black Bay. Well, you can get an old titanium uh, Tudor Pelagos for four thousand seven hundred again, but that's that's old in titanium. So I like this. It has also obviously got the uh, nod to the Tiffany blue in the <laughs> automatic 44 beep, just because beep, beep. of course you do <laughs> so yeah it was a very highly commented on article on the website I think a lot of people don't like the minute hand first of all it's huge but I think I kind of expect that type of design to be on the second hand but the size of it it probably I don't know you probably have to you might have a 12 hour power reserve on it to be able to rotate that at any <laughs> speed uh, the big marker on the end of it. I mean, the loom shot will look absolutely amazing yeah. with the way that the second hand has this enormous square pivoted right on the end of it. The minute hand, you mean? The minute hand, yeah. yeah. It's not a date version of this. Hmm. For a watch that I agree with you is pitched really at people just seeing the shiny things in the window, wanting a watch and then being convinced to buy this. The fact that it doesn't have a date complication, I think a lot of folk will look at I don't know, a Black Bay, something equivalent, and go, actually, I know I want something with a date. That just seems like the sort of thing I should have. I know for me, I like a date window. Don't care what anybody else says. I like to know what date is. I can't remember what the date is. I can remember what the month is and what day of the week it is. So I don't need a day date or a perpetual calendar. But remembering what the actual date is 
that's a thing. It's for people who don't care what date it is. If you go to the brightling.com website, it says dive with it, <laughs> surf with it, swim with it, hit the beach bar with it. It doesn't say check the date on it, you know? <laughs> and I feel like it's, it's a feel good watch and a feel good purchase. You know, people go in there and they are not reminded of the date at the moment when they are looking at the watch. They're like, oh, it's a fun color. You know, it's water resistant. Sure, I will take it. So this is not for one of those watches for us Presbyterians, Calvinist Scots. I yeah. With that kind of work ethic going, oh, drudge, drudge, drudge. <laughs> what, 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 how many days is it till I die? It's, it's because you cannot <laughs> swim on your beautiful beaches. So, you know, you spend two <laughs> minutes looking at the beautiful beach and then you start, oh, what day is it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> when is summer coming you so need, I can actually go in the water? You need more beach bars, you know, that's the thing. And then you would not <laughs> care about the date. I, I think the market for entrepreneurial beach bar opening in Scotland is somewhat limited. Oh, yeah. That would be oh, yeah. its own limited edition. <laughs> there we go. So, Rob, your final thoughts on this watch? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, colour is so hot at the moment. Uh, every, everybody's coming out with a bright orange and a powder blue and, and all this sort of thing. I think it's a great, great example. I, I'd probably uh, talk about it being a, a Doxa customer might be in, in line in line for something. And Doxa has been very, very hot over, over the last couple of years, doing, doing a good job. But I, I think this is... Uh, a great, a great watch for Well, thank you very much for both of you coming on today. Thank you, especially to yourself, Rob, guest hosting. Uh, what is happening in the Watch Pro world in the rest of the week? I know that you're going to a special event on Thursday that particularly tickles your fancy. I don't know if you're allowed to talk about it or not. Is that the Oris event? Yeah, well, actually, I mean, it's the second Oris event I've been to at Lords. I'm a big cricket big cricket fan and they had a, a sponsor's day a few a few weeks ago where I was field of the team where where we were actually allowed, you know, we were in, in the whites and striding out to the middle at Lords and playing a, a, a particularly appalling innings in my case, but uh, a, a dream come true walking out to the middle of Lords with Oris. And I think the Thursday one is is a is a a drinks reception on top of the pavilion. What's not to like? Yes. So what? Well, come on, confess. Were you out for a duck? Well, I played. I played two innings. I was out for a duck. Uh, <laughs> oh dear. The, 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 the first time, and then six not out the second time. So you know, I'll, I'll take that. So for our American audience, cricket is like baseball, but over five days, and you can still have a draw. And it's a, a sport designed by the English to be played outdoors in an English summer that has to last five days. Don't, don't start. We'll start going on about ridiculous Scottish sports next. <laughs> David, what are you up to the next week? Just slaving away here in uh, freaking 38 degree Budapest. That's all. Yeah, you're not doing really well at garnering sympathy amongst our audience. <laughs> all of these, all of these jives about working really hard in the sunshine. Yep. If I tell you that my house flooded this week, <gasps> built a brand new studio, and had to open it in a hurry two days or a week early <laughs> because we're an inch of water where I normally record. So there you go. That was my week. Oh my goodness. But uh, th there we have it. So anyway, thank you all very much for joining us. At Rob, where can people find you on the internet and on Instagram? Uh, Watchpro.com and Watchpro live on Instagram excellent and David where can we find you it's abtw underscore David on Instagram and you can find me at, at Rick TikTok and you can email the show at podcasts 
Now, I'm emphasizing the S because although I said podcasts last week, podcasts at a blog to watch.com, it didn't actually sound like it. So, yeah, podcast with an S at a blog to watch.com. If you want to fill us in on anything, tell us any stories, ask us any questions, send us any voice messages. So, thank you all very much for listening. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. Thanks, guys.